0: Greetings to each one this morning. (laughs) Maybe uh, open with a word of prayer. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. Father, we want to hear from your word. Father, I tremble standing here thinking about the message that I have. The things that were shared in the opening and how they flow together and just how you're working uh, here this morning. Let's pray, Father, that you could use me. I would not be in the way here this morning. Let's pray, Father, that uh, you speak to each of our hearts. Let's pray that you would bless the remainder of the service here. In Jesus' name. I picked a song here this morning. I hadn't thought of it as I was preparing the message, but as we were sitting here singing this morning, it came to mind, Am I a soldier of the cross, a follower of the Lamb? And shall I fear to own His cause or blush to speak His name? I might uh, read more of it a little bit later, but um, I don't know that I necessarily want to talk about being a soldier, but I do want to talk about a battle, or a couple battles, and a little bit like uh, Leon talked about this morning. I um, was actually a little nervous he was going to use my uh, text when he said to turn to First Samuel. We're going to go a couple chapters before that and look at First Samuel 14. Actually, I might read a uh, story here before I get into that I don't want to uh, this is a story of a military battle and I don't want to glorify war or um, condone what the beliefs of the man that uh, this story is about I don't I don't agree with it but uh, nonetheless it Describes very well the the topic I have here this morning. So I'm going to read a couple paragraphs or a couple pages here, I guess, um, about a battle in World War II, a battle for the island of Okinawa. Some of you may be familiar with this. I really don't. I really don't know, but it. Uh, As I thought about the message, it went very well. So the thing that stands out about Okinawa's idyllic Maeda escarpment, basically a, uh, a large cliff, the thing that stands out about it today is its peacefulness. Rolling green fields, trees, unique rock formations, and stunning vistas greet dog walkers, foreign tourists, and local school children alike. If those natural features were not enough, the escarpment is a wonder for a totally unrelated reason. It is known by another name that commands reverence called Hacksaw Ridge. Hacksaw Ridge, as the name implies, was the site of one of the bloodiest, some of the bloodiest fighting during the Battle of Okinawa 74 years ago. And this is the story of a 26 year old army. PFC, Private First Class, I believe, 26 year old Army Private First Class Desmond Doss, a Seventh day Adventist from Lynchburg, Virginia, who received the Medal of Honor for his actions under fire there. American forces began landing at Chatan and Yamatan on April 1, 1945. They began moving south toward the Japanese military headquarters at Shuri Castle. They had to fight their way through. Kakazu Ridge and Hacksaw Ridge as the island's Japanese defenders had taken the high ground to try and repel the invading Americans. Um, I mentioned this here. I read somewhere else that they consider this to be the, in all of the World War II, the second bloodiest battle. I believe D-Day would be the first, and then this being the second. Um... Hacksaw Ridge is a hilled area above the ruins of uh, Uroso Castle. The ridge was a logistical nightmare for both sides. It was inaccessible to American tanks and had to be climbed and taken by soldiers from the 307th Infantry Regiment, 77th Infantry Division. For the Japanese, the ridge's steep cliffs and narrow approaches didn't allow for machine gun nests to fire down on the Americans as they approached. The Japanese had to repel them once they summited the plateau. With the Japanese, which the Japanese transformed into a kill zone. Uh, remember, I think it said it earlier. It was a four hundred foot cliff that they climbed. <coughs> Doss arrived as a medic attached to Company B, First Battalion. According to the book *Okinawa: The Last Battle*, maybe didn't mention this. This is actually a news article. Uh, Quoting some of the history, different places, that talk about the battle. And many of the quotes come from that book, Okinawa, the Last Battle. As a pacifist, Das had had been threatened and harassed by his comrades for refusing to carry a weapon in combat or kill an enemy soldier. By the time Das got to Okinawa, he had already served with with distinction on Guam and in the Philippines, according to his obituary from 2006. Doss's company approached Hacksaw Ridge in late April 1945. They aimed for Needle Rock, a nearly 43-foot rock at the east end of the hill. He was in uh, Company B. So Company A tried to mount the the, uh, cliff first. They mounted four 50-foot ladders, uh, lashed together, and cargo nets on the eastern end on May 1st. However, every man who climbed to the top was killed. Company B attempted to climb with cargo nets further to the west. They were ultimately successful in getting two platoons, which would be anywhere from about 16 to 44 men per platoon. They were successful in getting two platoons on top of the 400-foot plateau. Thousands of Japanese soldiers awaited for them in caves and fighting holes, according to a U.S. Army history of Desmond Doss. As Doss and his fellow soldiers made it to the summit, they were pummeled with artillery, mortar, and machine gun fire. According to Doss's Medal of Honor citation, 75 casualties fell, and the rest of the men were forced to withdraw. Only, <coughs> only Doss remained. He refused to seek cover and remained in the fire-swept area, with many stricken, carrying them one by one to the edge of the escarpment, and there, lowering them on a rope-supported litter down the face of a cliff to friendly hands. I have a hard time reading through this, just imagining what this guy is going through. Many of the same men Doss had saved were the very same ones who had treated him so poorly in his military career. They, uh, another place it said that they tried very, very hard to throw him out of the army um they felt like he was they felt like he was uh he was weak he wouldn't carry a gun they didn't nobody wanted him fighting beside them because he wasn't carrying anything to defend himself um they they thought he was a coward um during training when he would pray in his uh in his bunkhouse or whatever. They, they would harass him. They would throw things at him while he was kneeling on the floor praying. He also required, um, in joining the military, he told them that he will not participate in things on Saturday because the Seventh-day Adventists would meet Saturdays. And so he was going to take off Saturdays. He would not go along with the, uh, the uh, training that was going on. And so they they mocked and ridiculed him endlessly through basic training, but they could not get him to give up. Um, On May 2nd, Doss exposed himself to rifle and mortar fire to rescue a casualty some 200 yards forward of the American line. On May 4th, he advanced through a shower of grenades to rescue four wounded men who had been cut down while assaulting a cave. Doss treated their wounds within eight yards of the cave's mouth and made four separate trips to evacuate them. A day, a day later, he exposed himself to shelling and small arms fire while he administered plasma to yet another casualty. Later that same day, Doss crawled to another severely wounded man who lay 25 feet from an enemy position. He treated the man and carried him 100 yards to safety. The battle for Hacksaw Ridge ended May 6th. However, that was not the end of Doss's heroics. On the night of May 21st, he was seriously wounded in his legs by a grenade while treating casualties. Again, alone in an exposed position near Shuri Castle, which was uh, the headquarters of the Japanese there on the island, I believe. He treated himself and waited five hours for help as he was being evacuated, they were caught in an enemy tank attack. Private First Class Doss, seeing a more critically wounded man nearby, crawled off the litter, or stretcher, and directed the bearers to give their first attention to the other man. Awaiting the litter bearer's return, he, be- he, again, he was again struck, this time suffering a compound fracture of one arm. Doss famously bound a rifle stock to his shattered, ar- shattered arm, which had been struck by a sniper's bullet, and crawled 300 yards to an aid station. He became the first conscientious objector to receive the Medal of Honor from President Harry Truman. Nearly 500 of the 800 men in Doss' battalion became casualties atop Hacksaw Ridge, and upwards of 3,000 Japanese were estimated killed. It's quite quite a story. I enjoy history, and I guess sadly, wars is part of history, but I was struck by this story, how he would not go, he would not carry a weapon that comes from his uh, growing up years and, and experience he had, um, where he would have actually taken a gun from his father who was an alcoholic, uh, broke up a fight between his parents, and he vowed never to I think never, to, never to carry a gun again. Not even, not even to use on animals. I don't believe from that experience. And uh, he said he told there was a trial there trying to uh, get him thrown out of the army. And he told all his superiors. He said while the rest of the world is trying to tear itself apart or tear each other apart. I don't think it's such a bad thing to try to put it back together again. So that was his, his uh, goal, his mission there. And I don't want to condone the going into the military and doing that sort of thing, but there's something from this. And it also comes out in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 14. And that is the word valor. Valor means great courage in the face of danger, especially in battle. What um, Mr. Doss accomplished there is nothing short of a miracle. The physical ability required to complete what he is on record of having done during that campaign is unimaginable. I don't, for some reason when I think back now of reading it, I don't think it said it in this article, but he was alone on top of the hill and he carried 75 men, wounded men to the edge of the cliff, lowered them 400 feet with a rope. And every time before he went back out, he prayed, "Lord, give me one more man, just one more man." And uh, it's incredible—the physical feat. I think they said he was like 150 some pounds, five foot six or eight, very small man. Not not at all what you would think of a person serving in the military. Let's uh, let's look at another battle here in first earn. Uh, I think I mixed up here. Yeah, first Samuel. I think I'm going to go ahead and read a good portion of first Samuel 14. Now it came to pass upon a day that Jonathan the son of Saul said unto the young man that bare his armor, Come and let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he told not his father. And Saul tarried in the uttermost part of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people that were with him were about six hundred men. And Ahiah the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest in Shiloh. Wearing an ephod, and the people knew not that Jonathan was gone. And between the passages by which Jonathan sought to go over onto the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on the one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of one was Bozzez, and the name of the other Senna, Seni. And the forefront of the forefront of the one was situate northward over against Michmash, And the other southward over against Gibeah. And Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come and let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. And his armor bearer said unto him, Do all that is in thine heart, turn thee. Behold, I am with thee, according to thy heart. Then said Jonathan, Behold, we will pass over unto these men, and we will discover ourselves unto them. If they say thus unto us, Tarry until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and will not go up unto them. But if they say thus, Come up unto us, then we will go up, for the Lord hath delivered them into our hand, and there shall be a sign unto us. And both of them discovered themselves unto the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Behold, the Hebrews come forth out of the holes where they had hid themselves. And the men of the garrison answered Jonathan, and his armor-bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said unto his armor-bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord hath delivered them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan climbed up upon his hands and upon his feet, and his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer slew after him. And that first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made was about twenty men, within as it were, an half acre of land which a yoke of oxen might plow. And there was trembling in the host in the field, and among all the people, the garrison and the spoilers. They also trembled, and the earth quaked. So it was a very great trembling. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of (coughs) Benjamin... Sorry. The watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude melted away. And they went on beating down one another... Then said Saul unto the people that were with him, Number now and see who is gone from us. And when they had numbered, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. And Saul said unto Ahira, Ahiah. Bring hither the ark of God, for the ark of God was at that time with the children of Israel. And it came to pass, while Saul talked unto the priests, that the noise that was in the host of the Philistines went on and increased. And Saul said unto the priests, Withdraw thine hand. And Saul and all the people that were with him assembled themselves, and they came to the battle. And behold, every man's sword was against his fellow, and there was a very great discomfiture. discomfiture. Moreover, the Hebrews that were with the Philistines before that time which went up with them into the camp from the country round about, even they also turned to be with the Israelites that were with Saul and Jonathan, likewise all the men of Israel which had hid themselves in Mount Ephraim. When they heard that the Philistines fled, even they also followed hard after them in battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed over unto Beth Aven. A little bit of background here, um, in the previous chapter, you have the story of Saul not waiting for Samuel to offer the sacrifices. Uh, Samuel didn't come on the appointed day, and Saul decided to, impatiently decided to go ahead without him. When Samuel does arrive, he tells Saul that he will be losing the kingdom to David. I don't think it says to David, but eventually that David would have been anointed. Uh, Saul then numbers the people and figures out he has about 600 men with him. And from... It was a, there There's a couple of verses in there that were a little confusing. as following the direction and things of where they went and the names of the places, but it would appear that they headed off to battle near to the Philistines at Michmash. Um, if we... Look at the end of ch- chapter 13. It talks about the uh, Philistines being there at Michmash, and also another interesting thing about the Israelites going into battle. There was no sword or spear found in I- all of Israel, except for with Saul and with Jonathan. They, uh, they each would have had a sword. And I don't know exactly how it all worked, but apparently the Philistines had rounded up all the smiths so that they couldn't make weapons. So much so that they had to go to uh, the Philistines to sharpen their, their uh, farming tools. So Saul and his 600 men, uh, it appears like, went to battle with two swords. The Philistines left a garrison. Which I, I tried, I looked a number of places, I tried to figure out how many men would be in a garrison, but I guess it's a detail the Lord didn't want us to know. But through that story, it would indicate that there was at least 20 and likely considerably more. One place said possibly up to 100 men were left at Michmash to basically hold the ground that the Philistines had gained. That is the idea of a garrison. The larger army comes through, takes an area. They leave a small remnant of the army there to keep order and and so that they don't lose ground back to the enemy. Then that brings us to chapter fourteen that I just read, and I'll probably just go down through it and talk about a couple verses, a couple points uh, as we go. Um, One thing I found interesting in verse 4, naming rocks sounded like kind of an intriguing thing. So I went and looked up the names of them, or what the meaning of the names of these rocks were. Apparently there was an important uh, thing there to have these rocks named. And it appears like the one named Bozaz... I think I wrote these down in the right order. The one named Bozes meant um, bright and shining, and the other one, <coughs> seni, I believe is how you would say that, uh, meant thorny. And so, if you think of bright and shining, and Christ, our rock, bright and shining, Um Jonathan and his armor bear literally went through a rock and the hard place, between a rock and a hard place. The saying goes, Christ the rock on one side and the hard place on the other. I'm not sure exactly what all the purpose or meaning of that is, but it, it struck me as kind of interesting as I thought about it. Jonathan here, the devotion that Jonathan invokes... From his armor bearer here is uh, is incredible. Remembering a lot of the facts from the end of chapter thirteen, um, the two of them go to. They would go up to the Philistines. Jonathan decides, "Hey, let's go up here." Doesn't say anything about it, but I would assume that he was in communication with God over the matter, or else he would not have been going. But uh, says to the armor bearer, let's go. The armor bearer says, sure, I'll go with you, knowing that they have one sword. What was Jonathan expecting the armor bearer to do? How was he expecting him to fight? This, as the story goes on, it gets more interesting. Rather than a, uh, a good military tactic... You know, a sneak attack or to flank around one side of them and attack on a weak side. They, Jonathan says, We're going to go part way up here and we're going to, we're just going to yell, Hey, look, we're down here. I mean, let them know that we're here. So they did. They both made themselves known to the Philistines. And Jonathan had a plan laid out. He said, if we're, uh, if they call us up there, then we'll go. If they don't, we'll stay here. And I thought it was interesting is that he, the plan was not, if they say we're going to come down there, then we we'll, we'd better run back and hide in the holes or run back to camp. You know, God must not want us to have victory here today, um. Apparently, this is some of my thoughts that I was thinking about that. God must not mind this blaspheming nation, and uh, the Philistines, an abomination in God's eyes, poking their fingers in God's eye. You know, the Israelites were God's chosen people, and they were suffering. But it must not be His timing if, you know, we'd better turn around and run. He probably doesn't even need us anyway. Those aren't, I don't think those are things Jonathan thought. Jonathan. Had in his plan, he was going to face the Philistines, whether he went up to them or they came to him. And as the story goes, they called him up. Find it interesting what the Philistines, the wording here, what the Philistines said. "Um, Come up to us and we will show you a thing. It doesn't really doesn't really make a lot of sense, like what? what is that? And I sort of get the impression that it's, um, you ever hear the phrase, you know, show them who's boss, that kind of a thing. So that's the impression I get, where the Philistines are like, huh, these two little Israelites, what do they think they're going to do? Come up here, we'll show you something. And uh, that's what Jonathan needed to hear, and on they went. Valor, as I mentioned before, has a very clear definition. Sometimes when you look up a word that can have three or four definitions, in different places I looked it up, I only came up with one. And that was great courage in the face of danger, especially in battle. It's not just doing dangerous things. Obviously what um, Jonathan and his armor bearer were doing here was dangerous. Uh, two going against possibly a hundred men with one sword. Um, you know, we can do we can do a lot of dangerous things. Um, I was trying to think of some examples. You know, the first things that popped into my mind were things like skydiving or bungee jumping. You know, we can do those things. They are dangerous, but that doesn't make them. Uh, it doesn't make it something valorous. It is. It's going forward against the odds. It's facing. It's facing the fear when others are backing down. When everyone else is running, uh, to stay standing. Facing fear and not cowering. And valor needs a cause. Some of those those other things I mentioned, the skydiving, this doesn't really have a cause. But Jonathan had a cause here. The Israelites were being oppressed. They were God's people. Um, there's many things you could say about that. Jonathan had a cause. He had a reason to stand up. Very few people will stand in the face of something like that without a reason. The story of Desmond Doss, he he felt like it was his obligation to do something to try to help uh, save men. It sounds a little uh, it's a little confusing to go to a war to save men when you know that going to the war is also killing men. That that doesn't make a lot of sense to us, but he believed it was his part to try to save his fellow Americans. And he stood in, in a very fierce battle, and did and did that. He showed great valor. I think I mentioned this already, that he was quoted as saying to his superiors that when all the rest of the world is intent on tearing each other apart, it doesn't seem to be such a bad thing to want to, want to put a little back together again. Jonathan likely thought a similar, or had a similar cause, it's not, uh, it's not God's will that we should be suffering under these Philistines. That's not what was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's very clear he probably would have known those stories being taught down through the ages. That was his cause, that God's glory might be made manifest through Israel, and that wasn't being done by them hiding in holes. So getting into the battle here. So they're coming um, different places. It talks about coming up, climbing up. It's clear that Jonathan was in a lower position in the battle, uh, which is generally a weaker position. Militaries often try to take a higher position because they have a better better range, um, better visibility. Jonathan was coming up from down below and it was steep enough that he had to climb up on his hands and knees I kinda got in my uh, picture in my mind of someone kneeling in prayer uh, battling in prayer and Jonathan climbing up here on his hands and knees to the battle Um, it says that they fell Find my verse here. And his armor bearer came after him. Uh, verse 13. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor bearer slew after him. And I tried to picture exactly how that would happen. You have one sword, and the armor bearer likely had a shield. And so they fell before Jonathan, and the armor bearer slew after him. Apparently, the armor bearer at some point. He either had Jonathan's sword, and Jonathan would just go and knock him over, and then they would he would kill him. I don't know. It doesn't make a lot of sense how the story is read here. Or do they take the first sword that came? The first dead guy, they took his sword, and then so they had two. It doesn't give those details. Apparently God didn't think those were necessary. Just like the number that was slain there. There's two things that I'd like to draw from that. When Jonathan stepped forward in faith, knowing and believing that God's will was, what God's will was, God was there. Um, I guess I didn't read far enough here. The earthquake. Verse 15, it talks about the earthquake. After they killed 20 men and a half acre of land, Everyone trembled and the earth quaked. So it was a very great trembling. Can you imagine uh, thinking of that picture of someone kneeling in a prayer? Can you imagine next time you're praying, kneeling, and an earthquake happens, fighting with God? It's kind of an interesting picture comparing this to our spiritual life and the spiritual battle that we face. Uh, The second point I'd like to draw from going into battle here, about Jonathan, is the authority and the leadership that he had was amazing. Somehow, it's a little hard for us to imagine that the armor bearer, knowing that they're going into battle with one weapon, knowing that they're outnumbered two to, for sure, 20, and possibly up to 100, also knowing that, or... Uh, in that leadership, Jonathan's leadership. The armor bearer was the only one that went with him of 600 men. The rest were hiding. They were in a position of fear, hiding in holes and caves. And the king of all people, who probably should have been going to battle too, is on the far side of Gibeah. I got the impression that he was trying to get as far away from the battle as he could because he knew, or he felt like they were going to lose, and the further away he was, the better chance he had of surviving. It says he was abiding there. And Jonathan, when he went into battle, um, the earthquake happened there. Um, He brought the armor bearer with him. They slew 20 men, then the earthquake happened. It says that it even brought... People, Israelites who had deserted them and joined with the Philistines he even brought them back to fight against the Philistines It's an amazing picture of, of his I'm not sure the right term if it's authority or leadership or but by him standing strong in the battle having great courage in the face of danger he drew other men into the battle with him. It's clear that Saul did not inspire valor in his men, and Jonathan did. Interesting thing to think about is that Jonathan likely knew that he was not going to inherit the kingdom. It was already before this that Samuel said that, um, I forget how it says it, that the... uh, Your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be captain over his people. Because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. In the general succession of kings. Usually the son would. Usually the son would take over as king when the king passed on. So Jonathan would have been probably planning on that at one point. Finds out that his. Because of his father's uh, stupidity or weakness or impatience, whatever you want to call it, he uh, disbelief in God—maybe be the best term there. Probably finds out that the kingdom is no longer his, but that doesn't mean he just turns and goes and hangs out with his father, who is uh, weak and in fear went on fighting for God. Both of them knew what should be done, but Jonathan did it. That's the difference. Many times people know what the right thing to do is, but not everybody everybody does it. Sometimes it takes courage in the face of danger. I, uh, Thought of another circumstance on valor um, that I'd like. Maybe I'll just mention some things about it. Actually, let's turn there. I think there's time. Judges, Chapter Four. It's a well-known story again. Uh, Deborah and Barak. Kind of skip through here a little bit, but in chapter four, uh, verse six, or the first part of the chapter, there explains the situation. Um, Israel is Israel is sold into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. Um, but going on to verse six, Deborah, who is a prophetess and judged Israel at that time. Uh, calls for Barak to come, and she says, Hasn't God hasn't the Lord God of Israel commanded, saying, Go and draw toward Tabor, and take with thee ten thousand men of the children of Naphtali and the children of Zebulun, and I will draw unto thee the river unto thee to the river Kishon, Sisera, the captain of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude, and will deliver them into thine hand. She says, basically says, Barak, didn't God tell you to go do this? What are you doing? Why haven't you done this? And he says, well, if you'll go with me, I'll go do it. He lacks the courage. He, it appears like from what Deborah said that he would have known that God was going to fight for him. It was a matter of trusting him, believing him. Um, Deborah says he'll go. She'll go, but because of his fearfulness to do as God commanded, uh, Barak to do, the glory of winning the battle wouldn't be his. It's um, another interesting story where Barak was a little bit like Saul. He did not. He did not have the courage. He did not have the strength to stand when the battle uh, was there. I also thought of, in my preparations, I thought of David and Goliath. David had the courage. The rest of uh, the Israelites did not, as Leon shared. It's a very, very good uh, message this morning. Kind of laid some uh, foundation for what I was wanting to share. Then in chapter 5... Um, I have another example, only this time in the positive. We have uh, verse 18. Zebulun and Naphtali were a people that jeoparded their lives unto the death in the high places of the field. They came and fought in the battle. They knew what was uh, required of them. They were prepared. And they even fought to the death in some cases. Or some of them died in the, in the fighting, it would indicate Um, this song here of Deborah and Barak is very interesting Um, I remember a few years ago sharing on some of it and uh, you kind of go down through the children through the 12 tribes I guess it would be the children of Israel there and uh, they kind of give a uh, what would you call it almost a report card of how they did or what they did in the battle. And you have some that don't show up, um, some that are too busy, and then you have some that risked their life, some that had other fronts they were fighting on, but they, they gave up enough men to come help in this battle also. It's um, a very, very interesting chapter there. They had great. Uh, they jeoparded their lives unto death. They had great courage in the face of danger. Now, I'd like to try to uh, next little bit move this over into more of a what would you say a spiritual sense, or not so much a uh, the physical battles, uh, you know, lore like as we've been talking about. But I think we can get. I think those stories, the the one I read from World War II, and also these here. Give us a little bit of a uh, maybe a picture of the um, kind of the what valor is to the extreme. Um, Help us to visualize that a little bit as we look at the spiritual battles we face. Um, I'd like to turn to Paul in Acts fourteen. To Acts and read about Paul, uh, chapter fourteen, nineteen, and twenty. Um, he is he is facing physical persecution here, um, but it is due to a spiritual battle that he is uh, engaged in. I want to just read 19 and 20, but I believe that this happened at Lystra. Yeah, Lystra and Derby in the cities of Lyconia. I'm not sure how you say that. Anyway, that he was preaching the gospel there. Um, Healed a crippled man. And then... In verse 19, (coughs) there came hither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Um, he oh I didn't read 20 how be it as the disciples stood around about him he rose up and came into the city and the next day he departed with them with Barnabas to Derbe so they throw him out of the city uh, because he's preaching the gospel the Jews stirred up people against him they stone him Um, they leave him out there thinking he's dead and he stands up, walks back into the same town, and sleeps there overnight. I uh, Sort of wonder how well he slept. You know, thinking about how these people just threw him out of the city. Maybe they didn't know he had come back in. But not only does he go back in that night, and then leave the next day on his own accord with Barnabas. But later, he returns again. Um... Not sure which verse it is, but it's uh, had of my notes that he returned again later to encourage the believers there, full well knowing that there were people there that didn't appreciate him and that it was a hazard for him to be there. Um, there's a book I read here a while back and uh, talked about Chinese Christians and the house church movement. So I have a Paragraph here I'd like to read. Um, this is the uh, first person from the author of the book asking these questions to the, uh, to the Chinese Christians there. I asked whether, when and how, the oppressed could truly threaten a totalitarian oppressor. They offered this scenario in response. The security police regularly harass the owner of a property where a house church meets. And the police say, you have got to stop these meetings. If you do not stop these meetings, we will confiscate your house and we will throw you out into the street. Then the property owner will probably respond, do you want my house? Do you want my farm? Well, if you do, then you need to talk to Jesus because I have given this property to him. And the security police will not know what to make of that answer. So they'll say, we don't have any way to get to Jesus, but we can certainly get to you. And when we take your property, You and your family will have nowhere to live. And the house church leaders will declare, Then we will be free to trust God for shelter, as well as for our daily bread. If you keep this up, we will beat you, the persecutors tell them. Then we will be free to trust Jesus for healing. The believers will respond. And then we'll put you in prison, the police will threaten. By now, the believers' response is almost predictable. Then we'll be free to preach the good news of Jesus to the captives to set them free. We will, not, we will be free to plant churches in prison. If you try to do that, we will kill you, the frustrated authorities will vow. And with utter consistency, the house church believers will reply. Then we will be free to go to heaven and to be with Jesus forever. Their mission wasn't about what they had here. Their mission was about, is about, um, about preaching Jesus, as Paul was doing here in Acts, also. So much so that they hazarded their life unto death, as it said about the uh, uh, Naphtali and Zebulun, I think it was. And so again, I've made much of the physical side of valor, even in some of these stories. You know, the physical persecution. Um, Thinking about Jonathan's email that came around, I saw it this morning. You know, they could face something like that there, but we're not facing that here. What? What does this mean for us here? How does valor translate to our Christian life, to a spiritual war? I don't know that I have all the answers. Actually, I know I don't have all the answers. Um, I did have a couple thoughts. As to what that might mean, and I would be uh, happy also to hear your thoughts and um, in discussion what how we can be valorous in the spiritual war and what that means. But a couple of things that came to my mind were that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, and the thought of prayer being one of our weapons. Um, how about committing yourself? or myself, to wield the weapon of prayer, no matter the cost, to our physical body. That means skipping meals or something, to pray until we break through whatever the battle is that we are praying about. Another thing that came to mind is, um, part of the reason this came to mind was thinking about the children of Israel there, and um, Deborah and Barak's song. Uh, One of them a boat and ships, I forget which of the uh, children it was, and the impression there is that the business was good, they were in the shipping industry, and they were too busy. They stayed in their ships. And uh, so how about our work here? Does it interfere with the battle that we should be standing up and fighting? Uh, More specifically, something that's... Uh, come to me quite a bit lately is what about lowering our cost of living so that we can devote more time to the kingdom just because the world works a 40 hour week does that mean we are supposed to um, turn to Second Timothy if you want Let's read a, I'm not going to turn there I'll just read a verse here Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, no man that warreth entangle himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Endure hardness. Uh, When I thought of this verse, I thought of... both of David going against Goliath, of Jonathan going up against the Philistines, um the two tribes of Israel there hazarded their life unto death this the hardness was not a it was not something new to them you know to go into battle it was not a David had the experience of fighting off the lion and the bear um, when he went before Goliath and as Leon brought out he, he had those experiences and because of that he could trust God that God would deliver this man into his hands also um, the endure hardness thing is that was not that was not something new to them. They were prepared for that battle. They uh, again, Leon brought out that David had been in the in the uh, uh, with the king there with Saul, and when they went to battle, they left went back to his, be with his father. David wasn't brought up in some sort of plush, um, easy, I can't even think of how to describe it really, but he endured hardness throughout his childhood, growing up and into young adult life that he was prepared for the battle. Being willing to face ridicule, stand for truth, uh, mocking and scorn from the world around us very easily causes us to shy away, uh, to keep our beliefs to ourselves. Well, I don't want to, you know, get into an argument about something with them, you know, they, I'll just let it go and won't share the truth in a conversation or afraid of what they might think of me, afraid of what, of. what people would think about how I look, maybe even. Those things, it's easy for us to do. But sometimes I wonder if it's because we haven't endured hardness. We haven't prepared ourselves for the battle. What about denying common comforts for the sake of serving others? If we live easy lives, avoiding hardship in little ways... When circumstances call for true valor, we will cower in the face of fear. Valor is to have great courage in the face of danger. Deuteronomy 31 says, To be strong and of good courage, fear not, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord thy God, he it is that doth go with thee, he will not fail thee nor forsake thee. Thought of, um, I think it's when Moses has the uh, Israelites, they let him out of Egypt, and they're in that valley or that uh, kind of tight place right before the Red Sea. There's no escape. I think it's there that it says uh, that Moses encourages them and says, "Stand still, for God will fight for you." I think it is. I didn't write that reference down, but I did read about it, and. It's not a battle we have to fight on our own. That's right. God is there to fight with us. For final reference here, I want to turn to Romans 8. I've mentioned before, this is probably one of my favorite passages of Scripture. After studying here about Jonathan, this might have to come in as a close second. Um, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. What shall we say then to these things? If God before us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us? I might interject a couple words in there. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is at the right hand of God, who gives us this power to stand in the battle. Who shall separate us, verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long, and we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things... We are more than conquerors through him that loved us, for I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's our there's our cause to stand valiantly for um, I also had a quote here I wanted to read. Thought of it this way. Stir some thoughts in your mind a little bit. Abraham Lincoln is quoted as saying, Those who deny freedom to others deserve it not for themselves, and under a just God cannot long retain it. Uh, That would have been said around the time of the Civil War, I believe, and uh, fighting for the freedom of the slaves. Um, I ran across that quote, and I thought about it. I thought, how many times do we cower in fear, not showing val- valor? Um, is that denying those around us the picture of Christ? To see God working through man? To see people around us to see the power of God? Um, if we deny that to others, do we deserve what we have in Christ? hope I made sense with my there, kind of changing the, changing freedom to um, denying Christ in a way by not uh, standing valiantly in the battle, by cowering in fear. I think that's all I have here, Just remember this uh, definition here, great courage in the face of danger, especially in battle, may uh, God bless each one of us as we Go to fight the battles that he has for us. I didn't talk much about the battles that we face spiritually. Um, hesitated making too much application in that. You'll have to make that uh, yourself and how God is speaking to you. But it, uh, there are definitely our battles to face. And we don't have to face them alone. We can face them with God and with our brothers sisters.